Hey, this is Dustin, one of the pastors at Grace Bible Church. Thanks for tuning in to listen to one of our sermons. We hope that this sermon encourages you, inspires you, and compels you towards a closer walk with Jesus and one another. If you would like to learn more about Grace Bible Church, contact us or partner with us financially, you can connect with us at www.gbc.life. Welcome to our church family. We hope that you enjoy the message. Hopefully by now you're in Mark chapter 10 as we continue uh, a, a three-week conversation. We, Jesus spoke about this in one section. We've been studying through the whole book, but Jesus was bringing up something that I think strikes a chord with a lot of us, and it stings. And I know that if I just taught it in one week that we would leave with more questions than we did answers. And quite frankly, I confess to you that teaching this over the course of three weeks is going to leave us with more questions than we have answers. But I at least wanted to give it a little bit more due diligence to have a little bit more of a layered conversation about marriage, divorce, and remarriage. And so we, we read this section of Mark chapter 10 last week, and then we backed all the way up uh, to the book of Genesis in the first pages of the scripture where we saw the first marriage happen, and God kind of declare its order and design, and we saw where it fell into the creation story and why God plopped it where he plopped it in the creation story and what his big master plan for marriage and society and what it was supposed to be. And we also talked about why it was so complicated because just as what you heard me say on the screen, that was a clip from last week, like God had big ideas for what marriage was supposed to be, the foundation of everything that was to come in society after that, but coiled around a nearby tree watching the whole thing go down was our adversary, the rascally devil himself. And he saw like God was building human society on biblical covenant marriage, that God chose to be worshiped through marriage as the first corporate worship service. So old Satan himself, he noticed that and he put, covenant biblical marriage at the top of his hit list. He knew that if I can strike that and take that down, it'll just be a domino effect into all the other things of society. And we're seeing the fruit of that today. And so we get back into the word of God. We take a close look at what the word of God says about it. It is not meant to guilt you or shame you. If you have someone who is a, a product of a failed marriage, or if you uh, are struggling with going through a divorce right now, or if you are a child of a uh, divorced family or whatever, like the point is not that so you walk out of here guilty. The point is that so you walk out of here understanding what the word of God says so that you can learn how to walk in obedience in the specific situation you're in right now. So you can figure out what your godly options are as a married couple or as a divorced person or as a single person who is yet to be married or whatever, figure out what your godly options are to honor the Lord with your set of circumstances right now. That's, that's the big picture. But in this, we're going to have some very direct and maybe even harsh conversations about some of this because I want to make sure um, that we are clear on what it is that Jesus is saying so that when we walk out of here today, we can make the hard choice of deciding whether or not Jesus belongs on the throne of our hearts as the God of our life, based on what he has said, or if we want to invite him off of that throne so that we can go back to being the God of our own lives because we like our way better. You have to make that decision. My job is just to tell you what the word of God says. You have to reconcile it with the Lord. You, you, you hearing what I'm saying? So let's pick up in this moment where Jesus gets cornered by some Pharisees who ask him what in their culture and what in our culture feels like an impossible question. Let's see what Jesus says. 
And he left there and he went to the region of Judea beyond the Jordan and the crowds gathered to him again and again, as was his custom, he taught them. And Pharisees came up and in order to test him, they asked, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? There are a couple of leading schools of thought at that time that were having a big debate in society at that time. I'll talk about that in a second. But the real reason why they wanted to corner Jesus with that question is because it wasn't too long ago, just a little over a year ago, John the Baptist spoke up about God's design for marriage. It flew in the face of what King Herod had decided for his own personal life. King Herod was mad at John the Baptist for saying what he said. And so King Herod chopped John the Baptist's head off. Now these Pharisees who are seeing just the incredible increase of Jesus's um, influence in their culture, Jesus has now out-influenced the religious leaders of the day. I mean, how do you compete with a guy who can cause the blind to see, the deaf to hear, raise people from the dead, serve 15,000 people, food with a craft lunchable? Like, you can't compete with influence like that. Jesus is greater and better than anything they had ever seen, and the religious leadership of the day hated the fact that Jesus' influence was exploding, so they would always try to catch him or his disciples in some kind of sin, which they couldn't. And so at this particular point in history, they thought, you know what? We can't seem to out-influence Jesus, but if we can get him to say the wrong thing that King Herod doesn't like, King Herod will just kill him for us. And so that's why they asked this question. Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? And he answered them and he said, well, what did Moses command you? And they said, well, Moses allows a man to write a certificate of divorce and to send her away. And Jesus said to them, well, he did that because of the hardness of your heart. That's why he wrote those commandments. But from the beginning of creation, this is where we went last week. Jesus predates everything that Moses had ever written in the law of God, predates it all the way back to the beginning and says, no, in the beginning in creation, God had a different design, a different plan. That's the plan that we're gonna stick with. God came up with marriage. It was his idea, not our idea. So we got to do it his way if we want it to work out the way he designed it to work out. He says, from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. Where have you heard those words before? Weddings, yeah, marriages, pretty typical words to be said at a wedding even to this day. And just so you know, no preacher came up with those words. God himself came up with those words on the first pages of scripture right at the beginning of the creation of humanity. He spoke those words over Adam and Eve when he joined them together in covenant marriage. This is how God felt about it. Now, we looked back at that last week at God's big picture design for marriage and how God was bringing order to human society through marriage. If you missed any of that, you can always check it out on our YouTube channel, on our website, gbc.life, or on our Facebook page, and you can just scroll down. I mentioned to you that the burning, one of the burning questions of the society of their day, as well as one of the burning questions in the society of our day, very similarly, is, was this question that the Pharisees brought up to Jesus. And it was about marriage, divorce, remarriage. And they brought up a specific place in the scriptures, Deuteronomy chapter 24, 1, and they asked Jesus, what did Moses mean when he said that a man could give his wife a certificate of divorce and send her away? Um, 
And what Moses said in Deuteronomy 24.1, you can read it for yourself this afternoon. He says that he has the right to divorce her uh, if, if she succumbs to indecency is, is the key word. Um, and so the debate was, well, what is indecency? What justifies divorcing somebody based on indecency? That was the debate of the day. Now, the two leading schools of thought at that particular time was the rabbinical school of Hillel, say Rabbi Hillel. Now, Rabbi Hillel taught, he said that indecency, according to Moses, meant that if your wife burnt your toast at breakfast, you could divorce her. If she said anything that you felt was inappropriate, if she said anything about her mother-in-law, yo mama, you could divorce her. If, she, if y'all were going out on the town and she was too fine when she went out and dressed in such a way that you felt she was trying to draw the attention of other men, you could divorce her. That's what Rabbi Hillel in the school, the rabbinical school of Hillel was teaching. But then the rabbinical school of Shammai, say Rabbi Shammai, Rabbi Shammai said, heck no, that's crazy, man. You, you can't degrade the value of women like that. You, you, you can't undermine the, the, the sacredness of marriage like that. Like none of those are good reasons for divorce. And Rabbi Shammai was teaching that the only grounds for divorce, according to what Moses said about indecency, is if that spouse had actions that suggested the possibility of sexual misconduct. He didn't go all the way as far as saying like only in the case of adultery, because in their particular culture, adultery would have handled itself, you'd have been stoned to death. So that didn't have to be a precursor or qualification for divorce. So Rabbi Shammai was saying any, any, the optics of sexual impropriety, anything south of adultery is good enough reason to divorce, is what Rabbi Shammai said. And then they turned to Jesus and said, obviously wanting him to slip up and be beheaded, but turned to Jesus and said, what do you think about this? What's the real answer? And this is what Jesus said. I'm gonna read it to you again, verse five. Jesus said, because of the hardness of your heart, Moses even wrote that commandment to begin with. But from the beginning of creation, long before the law of Moses was ever written, God made them male and female. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. And they are no longer two, but now they are one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. This was Jesus' response to them saying, hey, I, I hear that you're asking, like, what's the right way to do divorce? But I think the best way for me to answer your question is show you what the right way to do marriage is saying y'all are asking the wrong question to begin with. Let's not talk about divorce, let's talk about marriage. Let's see where we're going off the rails when it comes to marriage. Jesus is speaking about four specific things here. Marriage is design, say design. Marriage is timing, say timing. Marriage is sacredness, say sacredness. And marriage is permanence, say permanence. And you're thinking, gosh, where do we get all that? Jesus just said a few things there. We didn't have this big, robust theology on marriage right there, but actually we do. Jesus was doing something that we're not all too unfamiliar with when we teach people things too. Jesus was saying a whole lot by just saying a little. Um, In my pocket this morning, I have a $100 bill. I have no idea if this is real or not. I'm hoping it's real because it's the only one I got. Some of y'all could tell me whether it's real or not. Because you've been trained by your business, whether you're in banking or retail or whatever, like you, 
they, they sat you down and they trained you how to spot a real one and a fake one. But because of how brilliant the company that you work for is, they didn't send you through a six-week seminar and set you down in front of 175 different counterfeit $100 bills and quiz you on each one of them so that you knew rightly how to identify counterfeits. That would be foolish. That doesn't even make sense. Not to mention, they're printing new types of counterfeits every day. You'd have to constantly be in a state of learning what the new counterfeits look like in order to identify a counterfeit. You know what your company did in all of their brilliance? They taught you a whole lot by just teaching you a little bit of the right things. And they actually set you down in front of a real $100 bill. And they said, this is what the real one looks like. These are the key indicators of the authenticity of a $100 bill. If anything that you receive doesn't look like this, then it's a fake. Because they knew in all their brilliance that they could teach you a lot by just teaching you a little. And if you knew what the real thing looks like, you would know what the counterfeit was. This is exactly what Jesus is doing right here. This is exactly why. Even, even great scholars have said throughout history, like, I wish Jesus would have had more to say about marriage, divorce, and remarriage. Like, it's just, he just was so kind of point blank, matter of fact, and that was it. Well, he was calling us to look at the real thing so that we would know that anything that's outside of what he has just said is a counterfeit. Now we in our sinful hearts, we want him to wade off into the weeds with us, split hairs with us, to try to speak to all of the nuances of how counterfeit can be working out in so-and-so's life or in our particular story, but that's not what Jesus did. He said, hey, here's the real thing. Anything outside of that is not God's design or plan or strategy or whatever. So if you're a married person, we need to be aiming towards God design. If you're a single person, you need to be planning towards God design and looking for a, a potential spouse that is also like-minded or as the Bible says, equally yoked towards God's design and plan for that so that we would know what the real thing is. But Jesus is teaching us four key categories of how we know what, why, why and how and what God was doing when he designed marriage. And the first thing that he showed us Actually, before I tell you the first thing, I got to say this to you. I've said this to every service. I owe it to y'all too. It's my little disclaimer. I am not sharing with you my opinion about any of this. As a matter of fact, I, I probably will give you my opinion once, and it's not going to be today. It'll be next week. But I will let you know, hey, this is my opinion you can decide to do with it what you want. Everybody has the right to be wrong. You know what I'm saying? I'm just kidding. What, I, what we talked about last week is just straight up God's word. I'm just telling you what it says and what it means. What I'm going to do this week is now we're zooming back in on Mark chapter 10. If you have a red letter Bible, all these words we're going to be looking at this morning are written in red. This is what Jesus said about the issue. So let me just spare you from catching me in public and saying, Dustin, I disagree with you about that. I don't care because I didn't even tell you my opinion. Let me spare you from having to send me an email this afternoon saying, Dustin, I disagree with what you said about marriage today. I'm like, you're going to have to take that up with Jesus because I'm just telling you what he said. That's it. All right? So I'm going to tell you what Jesus said and what it means. You decide what you're going to do about it. You catch what I'm saying? All right? That's how we're going to do this. Next week will be the same. If I share my opinion about something, I will say, hey, this is my opinion. Take it or leave it. But if you have an issue with what Jesus Christ, the son of the living God, has said about a matter, you got a problem, and you need to talk with him about it. Okay, you hear what I'm saying? First things first. 
Jesus is teaching us, number one, the first thing that he's showing us right here in his statement is marriage's design. Notice when Jesus is asked about divorce, he says, you guys are asking me how should you do divorce right? Let me show you how to do marriage right. That's probably the better way to approach this. And Jesus doesn't even re respond to their question really. He actually goes back to the created order and he starts at the beginning of the creation of humanity and he says, God created them male and female. This is Jesus' statement about God's design of marriage. He goes on to say that he created the male and female, and a man shall leave his husband and wife, or a man shall leave his mother and father and be joined together with his wife. Jesus is making a bold statement, not just to our culture, but to their culture at that time, that biblical covenant marriage, as designed by God, if you're going to do God's thing, he's inviting you to do it his way. And he says that marriage is meant to be between one biological male, one biological female for a lifetime. Listen, I know that's confusing to some of us right now because I know that our culture is preaching a whole different sermon. Marriage is for anybody that loves each other. God's saying, if you're gonna do marriage my way, and I came up with it, by the way, I'm just reminding you, letters in red, Jesus reminds us too, marriage was designed and meant for a biological male and a biological female in covenant with one another and with God once and for all for the rest of their lives. That's what it is, all right? You decide what you're gonna do with that. I'm just telling you what the word of God is saying. You hear what I'm saying? Again, conversations like this put us in a position where we have to ask ourselves, all right, Jesus, are you a worthy king? Are you a worthy God who belongs on the throne of my heart? Or am I gonna invite you off the throne of my heart because I make a better God and I make a better king? You're gonna have to decide that for yourself, all right? That's between you and the Lord. This kind of helps answer the question that I get from time to time when people say uh, concerning um, homosexual or uh, same-sex marriage, when people say, well, you know, God had some really firm words to say about that in the Old Testament, and even the Apostle Paul had some firm words to say about it, but Jesus never says anything about it. Yes, he does. Jesus is not foolish enough to wade off into all of our conversations about every possible variation of a counterfeit. He says, let me show you what the real thing looks like. This is the marriage that God has designed since the beginning. It's never changed. God didn't change his mind. This is Jesus confirming it in red letter. This is Jesus Christ, the king of all things, who came to die on the cross for our sins and be resurrected from the grave, who just confirm that God's plan from the beginning is still God's plan now. It is the authentic version of biblical marriage. One biological male, one biological female in covenant with one another in the Lord for a lifetime. All right, that's God's design. This is what I told you he was saying a lot by saying a little, didn't he? No need to wade off into the weeds when you just say what it is. This is what the authentic version looks like. Look, and I get, let me just, let me just speak to I should have done a better job at this probably in other services. Let me just speak to the reality that I recognize in a sin-saturated world that, 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 that there are many who have um, same-sex attraction, that you, 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 just, you have never been attracted to the opposite sex. You have only have erotic and emotional feelings to people of the same sex. I get that. I get that I, since I was a small child, I just, I just like girls it's just always been that way. Can't ever remember a time that I've ever liked dudes. You, on the other hand, may feel the opposite. 
I get that. I'm not trying to throw a stone at how you feel about a thing. Trust me, I've got some deep issues in my own life because I feel certain ways about certain things that I'm having to bring unto obedience to the Lord because what God has said is different than what I feel is right. That's just, that is part of the journey of us being transformed. Obviously, we ain't all who we're supposed to be and how we're supposed to be. And what your temptation issue is is different than mine, but the reality of it is every single one of us need to be transformed. And I'm sorry, like, if, if your one big thing is the fact that you have just, just throughout your life feel strong homosexual tendencies, then, then marriage is not for you. It doesn't matter what the government says. If you, if you want to honor God with your life, and again, we're not talking about how we feel about stuff. We're talking about what the Lord God has said in his word. Like, if you want to honor God with your life, then you need to do so in a way that God has called you to honor him and submit that issue that you are struggling with, same way I struggle with my stuff, submit that to him and invite him to bring life and healing and hope in that very difficult thing that you're learning how to walk in obedience with. You tracking with what I'm saying? All right. Um, God's design. Uh, The next thing, uh, not only does Jesus speak to God's design, he goes on to say, in the beginning they were created male and female. And he says, that a man shall, therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined together with his wife. He's speaking to God's timing. Say timing. Time, we really got this one messed up in our culture. God's timing for marriage and, and even marriagey things. All right? We, we live at a time, and it's no different for them at that time. We, we live in a time where it's just become culturally normal to, like, test drive the car before you buy it. And it's found its way into our relationships too. That we have concluded that it's best practice for us to, uh, if we find somebody we really care about and we want to take our relationship to the next level, we don't think in terms of the next level of obedience to the Lord. We think of it in terms of the next level of trying it out. And so what we do is next, like when we get real serious about each other, we, we move in with each other for a little while and we pretend to be married just to see how it goes. You know what I'm saying? Because you want to know if he snores or not. You want to see what her hygiene is like. You want to see how they treat your children. Like, I, I get that. I get the, the pragmatic, rational reason why we think that's a right and good idea. But just like God's design, God so also gave us some very specific timing for his glory. And because he sees the incredible and extraordinary damage that can be caused in our lives by trying to do a God-ordained thing our own fleshly way. And God says the right timing for married people stuff, living together, being sexually involved with one another, the right timing is only when a man has left his mother and father and has been joined together with his, what's that word? What, there you go, wife. Not his girlfriend. You, you picking up what I'm putting down? Listen, I know we got, we got dozens Dozens. I mean, we got tons of couples uh, in our church family that they, you know, you've been living together. Some of y'all been living together so long, everybody thinks you're married. You know what I'm saying? I'm, I'm here to tell you you're not. All right. Um, but some of y'all, because you really do care about us, each other, you really are getting serious in relationship. You're thinking that that's the right next step because culturally speaking, that's the sermon that's been preached. And, and you've kind of bought the bait on that. 
I'm just wanting to point you to the word of God to say it's God's timing that you would not do it that way, that you would take your, next, your relationship to the next level by submitting to the next level of obedience to the Lord as a couple, figuring out what those right godly options for you are, and so that you are walking in faithfulness to him the whole stretch of the way. I mean, why wouldn't you want to do that if you are seeing a potential future with this person? You know what I'm saying? That should drive us to want to honor God even more because we want the blessing of God on that, on that relationship. You know what I'm saying? If you care about it, that would be the right move to make. Now, listen, um, a lot of time when I talk to single people or dating people uh, that, that care about honoring God with their relationship. Now, look, I know some of y'all, y'all don't, I, I'm going to be honest with you, I know some of y'all do not care a bit about honoring God with your relationship. Let's just be honest about that, okay? Let's not play church together, okay? I know some of y'all could care less about honoring God when it comes to this stuff. Like, you want to honor God in the stuff that's convenient to you, but this other stuff, like, you want to do it your way, all right? And God can just wait until you've decided what to do. Listen, you're going to sow a wind, you're going to reap a whirlwind, partner. Do what you want to do. I'm just telling you, a lot of couples that are trying to honor God with their relationship, a variety of different ages, almost all ask the same question. And the question is, Dustin, um, according to the Bible, where's the line? I've asked that question a lot of times too. Where's the line? Like, you know, how much is too much? Like, how much can we get away with and still be good with God? You know what I'm saying? Like, where's the line? Let me ask you why you're asking that question. If, you ask, if you're asking it like I was asking it, I don't want to judge you, but don't judge me either. Uh, I'm going to tell you why you're probably asking that question. You want to know where the line is so you can get right up to the line as close as you can get and lean out over it so that you still don't feel bad about whatever it is that you're doing because technically you didn't cross the line. You know what I'm saying? Uh, you know that the scripture never speaks to where's the line? The scripture only speaks to when's the time. Listen, like I said earlier, Jesus doesn't wade off into the weeds of our splitting hairs and like all of the nuances of us trying to find the easiest way to do it that's the least sinful. He don't even bother with that because he wants us to flee from temptation. He wants us to flee from sin. So he never tells us where the line is because he knows that we're going to walk right up to it, lean right over it, and every once in a while just do a little, you know what I'm saying, just. So I never speaks to where's the line, but he says he teaches us when's the time. He wants us to flee temptation otherwise. He wants us to resist the temptation to sin in our lives, not figure out where the last safe spot for us to be. But he teaches us where's, when's the time so that we know when the right godly ordained order for our life is for us to be sexually intimate, for us to live together, for us to do all the things that God had given to us as a gift and reserved for the covenant of marriage. He's doing it to try to protect us, you know what I'm saying? And we're trying to find a loophole somewhere. But Jesus right here speaks to God's perfect timing, when a man leaves his father and mother and is joined together with his, what's that word? 
wife. When you've entered into covenant with one another and covenant before the Lord as a couple, that's the time. Then, 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 then you ain't got to worry about the line no more. The third thing he gets into as he goes on to say, they were created male and female. A man shall leave his father and mother, be joined together with his wife. And then he says, and the two have become one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let not man separate. This third thing, when he talks about one flesh, he's speaking to the sacredness of marriage. Like it is, it is a mystical and mysterious thing that two individuals would become one flesh. Pretty, pretty crazy idea, isn't it? It's something supernatural. Uh, he, he's speaking to that in accordance with when's the time that sexual intimacy would happen within the covenant of marriage because that, that sexual union creates a supernatural spiritual union as well. That there is a one fleshness when we enter into that level of relationship and covenant one, with one another. That's why it's not meant for dating couples, even serious dating couples, even dating couples who've been together for years because some of y'all know as well as I do, like when you start doing married stuff as a dating couple and then you end up breaking up and moving on, which many of us have, you carry the burden and the weight of a divorce with you when it wasn't meant to be. When there was a commingling of souls in a supernatural level, this is why some of y'all can even remember the first time, those of you that uh, had sex prior to being married, y'all can even remember the first time and the first person? It's because like there was a commingling of souls that didn't just stop with them, with every other sexual partner that you have, there was like this very intimate commingling of souls and every time that you decided uh, just to break up and move on, you couldn't just break up and move on because there's like this deep entrenched thing that you have going on because of the levels that you took the relationship that were meant to just be within the covenant of marriage for your safety and for the safety of your future. Picking up what I'm putting down? I know we're having some real adult talk. I should have advertised for this to make sure all the kids were next door. A little rated R, bound chicken, wow, wow talk. It's the good stuff. But it's a sacred thing. You know, Jesus saying what he said, that the two have now become one flesh, uh, it really flies in the face of one of the most common misconceptions of marriage and really relationships in general today. Let me let you in on a little secret. Um, there's no such thing as a soulmate. Oh, yeah? New news for anybody? There's no such thing as a soulmate, all right? We just made that up along the way. It, it, the soulmate idea actually comes from Greek mythology, you know, according to Greek mythology, like when humanity was being formed, that humans actually had four arms, four legs, and two faces. And Zeus was afraid that humans were going to be too powerful like that. So what he did is he ripped them apart at the soul level and cursed them to have to wander the face of the earth for the rest of their life looking for their soulmate, their other half. That's all Greek mythology. That's not real, and it's not Bible. There's no such thing as a soulmate out there. Sure, you have a very soulish connection with people that you care about, but, like, I hear the excuse all the time. People say, well, you know, we've, we've been married for almost 10 years now, but, like, as we have grown and matured as adults, we just realized that, like, we're not each other's soulmates. And I'm like, you dumb. You making that up, like... 
Y'all just looking for an excuse. You don't have a soulmate. Those of you that are out there looking for a spouse, like there is no soulmate and there also is not the one. We made that up too. There's not the one. The one is who you make it. You know what I'm saying? It's not a biblical idea. We just came up with it because we watched two daggone many movies. And we're just thinking, oh, one day I'm going to be on vacation. And I'm going to, some of y'all go on vacation just hoping to run into the one. And I'm going to walk into this, you know, department store and I'm going to look over my shoulder. And it's like all of heaven is going to open up and we're going to lock eyes and it'll be love at first sight. And I will finally have found the one. Listen, there ain't the one out there. The one is who you decide together that you share values. As the Bible says that you are equally yoked together, hopefully. Some of y'all don't value that like you should. We'll talk about that some next week. Um, but the one is who you stood at the altar with, entered into covenant with before the two of you and the Lord, and you decided that we are for each other. We are going to live this life together in covenant to the glory of God. Listen, like, Ansley was not the one for me. I will say this, when Ansley came into my life, I became very quickly convinced that I would rather live the rest of my life with her than live it without her. That's for sure. Not because I'm some supernat, not because we found our soulmate in each other, almost like it was this irresistible, impossible for us to fail in the relationship because finally we found the one, our soulmate. None of that's real. We found each other. We, we carefully examined each other's likenesses and differences. That's what you do when you date. We loved being together. We knew that staying together for a lifetime was gonna be costly, but it was worth it to both of us. And so we decided to make each other the one by entering into covenant together with the Lord. And that's when she became the one. So yes, she and I have become one flesh. Yes, she is my soulmate now because we chose that for one another. And the same is true of you. That's why the Bible gives, again, just points to the real McCoy when it comes to looking for a relationship. It, do, it doesn't tell you what to look for other than that you need to be equally yoked together as believers. Not saying, oh, well, he believes in Jesus and I believe in Jesus, so we're good. Are you equally yoked? Do you carry the same amount of conviction about that? That's important. You single people looking for a spouse. We'll talk more next week about those of you that have spouses that you've now realized you're not equally yoked. The Bible has something to say about that as well. But Jesus speaks to the sacredness of marriage, which is actually the opposite of soulmates, guys. Soulmates is the idea that you started as one and then you were separated and you have to find each other. Jesus is actually teaching us here that two otherwise individuals who are not destined for one another, you come from different families, different backgrounds, maybe even had different priorities in life or a different purpose or different trajectories. Maybe you come from different cultures or you come from different racial groups. Like the power of what Jesus does in covenant marriages, he can take no matter the diversity and difference, he can take that and make that one flesh in a supernatural, mystical union of two like-minded people who are willing to walk towards Jesus together with their lives. That is a powerful covenant thing, not that piddly soulmate nonsense.
Last but not least, Jesus speaks to, in his last statements, he says, two have become one flesh, and what God has therefore joined together, let no man separate. Jesus speaks to the permanence of marriage. Say permanence. What God has joined together, let no man separate. When God brought this mystical union of one fleshness together, it was meant to be forever for a lifetime because, like, once that has happened, to rip it apart, y'all know, statistically speaking, over 50% of us in this room have been divorced. I bet almost 100% of us have been affected by divorce. When you rip apart a one fleshness, like the aftermath of that and the pain that that has and just like the ramifications, it's significant, isn't it? And it doesn't just affect the two that were married together. It affects everybody in that circle. You know what I'm saying? Like there's, it's just a big deal. It's a big deal because that's not what God designed it to be. He meant it for it to be forever. Like anytime we try to rip that apart, then there's obviously heavy consequences for that. Many of us have experienced the weight, weight of those consequences in our lives, but like this idea of permanence that Jesus is talking about is marriage was given to us as a gift from God so that we might have some idea of what his covenant with us looks like. An everlasting, never say die, no matter whether it's an up season or a down season kind of covenant together. And here I've got some good news for you. For those of you that have trusted Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior and you have entered into covenant with him, I've got the good news for you that he will never, ever try to ask you for a divorce. Even when you are a terrible bride, he won't. He has staying power unlike any other. And his willingness to remain in covenant with you, unlike us, does not rise and fall on our performance during the different seasons of life because he is steadfast and true no matter how unfaithful we are to that covenant with him. That's good news. But he gave us like marriage on earth with each other so that we might have some kind of idea of the gravity of that covenant that he has with us. Just how much sacrifice commitment, seriousness, intentionality, how, much, how daily you have to choose to move towards each other. Like just how broad and how vast and how lovely and how complex and how hard covenant is. That's why he gave us marriage, that we might catch a glimpse of his radical love story for us. That's why it was given to us in this perfect picture of covenant. And I hear people tell me, yeah, Dustin, I get all that and I believe all that, but like the reality of it is, it's like, I know, that, I know that the Bible, you know, tells us that God, you know, doesn't like divorce and that, and that like, but the reality of it is, it's like, man, we just can't stand each other. And it's been getting worse, like over the years, we just cannot stand each other. It's terrible. And I know, like, even though God says that he doesn't want us to get divorced, like, doesn't the Bible say something about, like, but, but God wants us to be happy, right? And to that I say, like, God doesn't say that he doesn't like divorce in the Bible. He tells in Malachi chapter 2 that he hates divorce. And according to the scriptures, he has next to nothing to say about our happiness. Just so you know. God's overarching commitment to your life is not to make you happy at any cost. His overarching commitment into your life is to make you holy no matter what it takes. You'll find happiness when you learn to walk in obedience to that call that God has on your life. But like if you're going to constantly be in division, 
constantly trying to do it your own way, be the king of your own circle, pointing fingers at God, why stuff's not working out in your life. Like the reality of it is, is like, yeah, you're not going to be able to find happiness that way. You won't be able to find peace and contentment. That can only be found in Christ Jesus and in your relationship with him. That's why Jesus says such strong words at the end of this passage. We'll talk a little bit more about next week. And he, when he went into the house, his disciples asked him a little bit more about what he said. And he said to them, listen, whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her. And if she divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. Jesus gives an exception to that in Matthew chapter 19, except for in the cases of marital infidelity. Jesus' whole point is like, we should only sever this supernatural bond God has given us only in the most extreme situations. We'll talk a little bit more about that next week um, because let's be honest, like even if we do agree with God's design for marriage, it's not always as clean cut as we would like it to be, is it? We've got some questions and honestly, some of us are on the other side of divorce or on the other side of remarriage and we're trying to figure out how do I walk in faithfulness to God in these set of circumstances, even though the last set of circumstances didn't shake out, whether it was my fault, their fault, all fault, all fault, yeah, all our fault, it's my third service, I just say random things at this one, uh, our fault or not, like re, here I am, can't change the past, Dustin, so what do I do now? We'll talk a little bit about that next week, and um, as we consult what Jesus says, what the Apostle Paul says, you can get ahead of me. You can read Matthew chapter 19. You can read 1 Corinthians chapter 7, begin to commit those things to prayer. We're going to talk about things next week like, is it a good decision for a Christian to date a non-Christian? Uh, is it a good decision for a Christ follower to marry a not Christ follower? Uh, what do you do if you are in a Christian marriage where both of you are Christians, but it's just miserable to no end? Uh, are you allowed, biblically speaking, to get a divorce? Uh, if not, why not? And if you do, are you allowed, biblically, to marry somebody else that you might like better? Um, what do you do uh, if you are a Christian spouse that is married to a non-Christian spouse? You're wanting out, but that non-Christian spouse is wanting to protect the marriage. What are your next steps there? What do you do? These aren't all hypothetical questions, by the way. These same questions are what the people of Corinth were asking the Apostle Paul. And so we're going to consult the Word of God next week, and we're going to wrestle through some of these nuances and try to figure out what our godly options are right where we stand in the dynamic of our life and our relationships. Uh, let me pray for you. Let me also point you back to a book, whether you're single, divorced, married, whatever, um, let me point you back to a book. I didn't put it up on the screen this week. I'll try to remember that next week. But uh, the book uh, Sacred Marriage from Gary Thomas. I showed a photo of it last week. That book had a huge influence on Ansley and my life. We spent some time in our first year of marriage reading that together. Uh, but Sacred Marriage from Gary Thomas is probably one of the most impactful biblical explanations of God's design for marriage. Uh, and I would encourage you to check that out. Even if you're single and you, you're thinking, well, maybe I'll get married one day, go ahead and attune your, learn from the pro, Jesus himself, and attune your heart to that as you begin to look for a spouse that may change what you're looking for in a spouse. For married couples or struggling marriages or divorced folks, like still, that's a great place for you to land. It's really written to you. You know what I'm saying? 
Let me pray for you. I look forward to seeing you all next week as we tease out the third part of this tricky conversation, shall we? Lord, I thank you for your word. I thank you for your commitment to us despite our unfaithfulness to you so often. Lord, I know that in this room, even right now, much less throughout the weekend, there are people in every scenario of relationship and trying to figure out what do I do. Lord, I pray that your spirit would speak to them. I pray that the assurance of your Holy Spirit would give them peace when they land on what is true and right and good for them. Lord, I pray that you would give guidance to those who ask. I pray that you would give wisdom to those who ask. Lord, I pray that your word would come alive to us. I pray that we would see just how relevant it is, even in our 21st century context. Lord, you are the authentic king, and you have a perfect design, and marriage was your idea. So God, I just pray that you would show us and give us the grace and how to walk it out the way you've called us to. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.